Oh, Jason, thank you very much indeed. Do uh, turn in your Bibles then to uh, John chapter 19 as we carry on looking through these uh, chapters 19 and 20 in the lead up to Easter and then just after as well. Uh, John chapter 19 is page 1088, 1088 in the Church Bibles and it would certainly uh, help you, I think, to have that open in front of you. Page 1088, John 19, verses 28 to 42. Uh, Surely one of the most intriguing stories to hit the headlines this week is the murder and funeral yesterday of the former Sinn Féin member Dennis Donaldson. Donaldson, as you will have heard in the news, once ran Sinn Féin's offices at Stormont but was unmasked last December as an MI5 and police special branch agent of 20 years standing. So for 20 years then, as people looked at Dennis Donaldson, they thought they were looking at a Sinn Féin member They were, in fact, looking at a man in the employ of the British Intelligence Service. Things were not as it seemed in the Sinn Féin office in Stormont. And things are not as they seem as we gaze upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Who do we make of him as we see him dying? To the naked eye, that crucifixion seemed little more than a man dying an horrific death. But John will tell us as we go through this passage that Nothing could be further from the truth. And indeed, if you're taking uh, notes, then here's the first point. Despite appearances, Jesus' death is the fulfilment of God's plan for the universe. You see, if if you and I could go back in the uh, Doctor Who TARDIS and go to the scene of the crucifixion and ask the crowd what was going on, many of them would have told you that uh, Jesus was a blasphemer being punished by God. Others would have said that he was a a common criminal suffering the punishment of the state. Uh, His followers may have told you that he was an innocent man suffering a gross miscarriage of justice. But I doubt that any would have told you what John tells us, that the cross was the outworking of God's plan for the salvation of the world. Uh, John makes it very plain to us here that everything that happened concerning Jesus' death was fulfilling what the Lord had already prophesied. We saw it, didn't we, last week in verse 24. The soldiers who formed the execution squad, once they had done the dirty deed, were now sitting around the the foot of the cross and dividing Jesus' clothes among them. But his robe was seamless and rather than rip it up, we read verse 24, let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now in the Old Testament, in the part of the Bible that was written before Jesus arrived on planet Earth, it was written that they would play dice for his clothes. A thousand years before it happened. And John makes the same point over and over in these verses, either explicitly or implicitly. Explicitly in verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled... Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Now look down to verse 36. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one who they have pierced. John wants us to see that over and over again, a text or a prediction of the Old Testament is being fulfilled here as Jesus dies. So make no mistake, the death of Jesus was not a tragic end to a wonderful life, but the fulfilment of God's plan for the world. 
Everything that happened on that first Good Friday happened to fulfil what was written in the Scriptures. Scriptures written hundreds of years before the event, being fulfilled down to the most minute detail. And the detail is astonishing. Here we are on the 9th of April 2006, and this evening, live on BBC, you can watch the drama of the final round of the Masters Golf at Augusta as it unfolds before your very eyes. Imagine now that I could tell you how the Masters would unfold in the year 2040, that 34 years from now. Imagine I can tell you who would win the famous green jacket in 2040 that I could even correctly predict who would qualify for the tournament, the entire field, including people who have not yet even been born yet. Imagine that I can not only tell you who won the event, but what golf ball they used, what they wore, the name of their caddy, when it rained at Augusta, the temperature for each round, the length of the course, and even the pin positions on every day. That's what the Bible does with the death of Jesus. It is incredible. It's not just that Jesus' death is predicted, but that it is so accurately foretold, laid down for us in the most minute detail, and hundreds of years before it happened. Now I want to ask you this evening, what do you make of that? What do you make of the the death of Jesus? Uh, Where do you think Jesus' death ranks in the great moments in history? And what do you think was going on when Jesus died? See, as we we head towards Easter weekend, do you think in the grand scheme of things that the death of Jesus is an irrelevance? Well, I guess you don't, that's why you're here this evening, but many people do. For many, this coming Easter weekend will be nothing more than a long weekend off work. Easter is little more than a chocolate fest. For many, Jesus' death will not even feature this Easter. What about you? When it comes to the important events in history, where do you rank the death of Jesus? And never mind in the grand scheme of things, what place in your life does Jesus' death have? See, John points out to us that the death of Jesus was predicted in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before it happened, and in the most meticulous, thorough and careful detail. And as he does that, that should tell us that in God's mind... The death of Jesus is the most important event in the history of the world because in God's book it is the most prominent event, more prominent than any other event in the history of the world. And as we look at the detail of the predictions we'll begin to see why it is so important. Well secondly then, despite appearances, rejecting Jesus is a catastrophe for those who cause it. Look at verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. A dying man needs a drink and they give him vinegar. Some may think it's cruel, others may say he deserved it. It is in fact the most wicked thing anyone could ever do. While hundreds of crucified victims before him had cried for something to drink and no doubt hundreds had been given vinegar, Jesus' words were different. See again verse 28, So that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And verse 29, they gave him wine vinegar to drink. 
Uh, We saw it in verse 24, here it is again. The exact detail of the events of Jesus' death being written down hundreds of years before it happened. And this particular detail was written by a previous king of Israel, King David, who lived approximately a thousand years before Christ. And we can read this prophecy in Psalm 69. Indeed, I'd like to encourage you to keep your finger in in John 19, because we're going to come back here quickly. But, But come with me to Psalm 69, page 584, and just see the detail of this particular prophecy. Page 584. And as you turn it up, you'll see it uh, there in verse 21. Psalm 69, verse 21. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Do you see the fulfilment of the prophecy? But it's the verses beforehand that teach us what a shocking moment it is. Look at verse 19. You know how I'm scorned, disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. It's a remarkably accurate description of the cross of Jesus. All his enemies before him pouring scorn upon him. Do you remember the words of the religious leaders of Jesus in Jesus' day as he died? They showed their utter contempt for Jesus as they said, He saved others but he can't save himself. Then there were the passers-by. They shouted at him, Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And as we've already seen, the soldiers gambled for his clothes while he suffered such agony. See, Psalm 69, verse 20. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. At his time of greatest need, Jesus found not an inch of sympathy or comfort. Those around him wouldn't even give him something to quench his thirst. As he cried out for water, they gave him vinegar to drink. Such was the scorn of the Son of God. It's predicted here in Psalm 69. Not just that it would happen, but the way people would hate him. We see it fulfilled in John 19, but Psalm 69 tells us that it demonstrates how much we hate Jesus. Or as the psalm says, how much we scorn him. Now bear that in mind as we come back to John 19. We scorn the Son of God. It happened on the cross as he died on the cross. But of course it is not something consigned to history. That same scorn for Jesus is happening every day. Just open your newspaper to see how people scorn Jesus. Here's uh, yesterday's Times. The front page uh, has uh, details of the court case concerning the film rights for the Da Vinci Code. It's uh, then explained uh, in pages 8 and 6 and 7, I think. So here are people making money from a story that tells gross lies about Jesus. Do you see how we scorn him? Well, that's a fairly obvious one, but you'll see it on virtually every page if you look hard enough. Uh, Page 18. Here's a, here's, a, here's a story. Oxbridge's finest offered cash to write essays for lesser students. You ever do that, Jason? No, of course you didn't. Were you ever at, at one, of the, one of the great colleges? No, just Oak Hill. Yeah, great. Well, Jason never did it. It's an ordinary story, though, of people lying and cheating. It happens every day, doesn't it? But again, it shows how we scorn Jesus. For the Lord said, you shall not give false testimony. And so every time that you and I lie, and we do it all the time, 
We are saying, stuff you, God. I will run my life my way. I want to, if I want to lie, I'll lie. Do you see how we scorn him? Well, you can read on. Page 27. And I could have gone through the whole paper, but we would have been here all night. Uh, page 27 tells of a police constable who, who, who tipped off co- uh, criminals for cash. PC who tipped off criminals for cash. That's the, that's the headline. Again, such scorn for Jesus. For the Lord himself said, you shall not steal. And so every time we steal and covet, we are saying, get lost, God. I want to do things my way. Don't interfere with my life. And we are all guilty every day. All of us. We may not make the times, but we all do something like this all the time. Look at my thought life. I've had the most wicked thoughts about some people. There have been people I've wanted out of my life and off this planet. And you see how I've committed murder in my head? And in our thoughts we've committed sexual immorality. It's the mental striptease and the imagined, imagined sex. And yet the Lord tells us not to commit adultery and so we could go on and on, couldn't we? Jesus tells us how to live and we reject him. So Jesus is scorned, disgraced and shamed by you and me every day, every day as we ignore his commands. And so we are as guilty as those who gave him vinegar to drink when he needed water to quench his thirst. It was just another mark of our scorn towards him. Such scorn and disdain for the Son of God. And it was all predicted in Psalm 69. And it is exactly why Jesus went to the cross. Well, thirdly, despite appearances, Jesus' death was not a failure, but the greatest achievement ever. Verse 30, when he'd received this drink, Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. Drinking vinegar when he wanted water is indicative of all that Jesus was doing as he died on the cross. Uh, You see, this was the second drink offered to Jesus during his execution. I wonder if you've ever seen this before. Uh, When Jesus first arrived at the scene of crucifixion, we read in Mark chapter 15, verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Wine mixed with myrrh was a a sedative designed to dull the agony, but Jesus refused to drink the drink. He would not avoid the pain and suffering of the cross. And that is exactly why he did take this drink, the wine vinegar, when he was so thirsty we see in that drink the extent of mankind's rejection of the Son of God. As he drinks the vinegar, we see how Jesus was determined to drink the cup of suffering that the Father has assigned him and that men and women laid upon him. And that is why Jesus went to the cross, to suffer the punishment for our sin, for our scorning him. That's why, verse 30, when he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. His last words before giving up his spirit. I've always been fascinated by famous last words. I haven't really collected many of them, but here's a few. I'm told that the last words of William Gladstone in the 19th 19th century British Prime Minister were these words. I feel a lot better. (laughs) Apparently the Duke of Wellington on the verge of death said, die? That's the last thing I'm going to do. Well, he did, and so it was. And no doubt some of you know the famous last words of Oscar Wilde as he was expiring in a hotel room in Paris. That wallpaper is killing me. One of us will have to go. 
Well, sadly for Oscar, it wasn't the wallpaper. Well, here are arguably the most famous words ever spoken. Verse 30, Jesus said, It is finished. Now, this was mission accomplished. You see, Jesus didn't say, I am finished. This is not a cry of defeat, but an announcement of accomplishment and fulfilment. It's the word you'd stamp on an invoice when the account was settled, paid. Because as Jesus died on the cross, he was cancelling a debt. See, we've already seen it. You and I are up to our necks in spiritual debt. We have scorned the ruler of the universe whom we should respect. We've shown contempt for the Son of God whom we should worship. We're up to our spiritual necks in debt and we cannot pay the debt we owe. Yet amazingly, the one we rejected paid the debt himself. It is finished. Paid. And as we go on, we see it was entirely voluntary. See, fourth, despite appearances, Jesus' death was in Jesus' hands. Verse 30, he said, it is finished, and with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You see, on the surface, this chapter is all about others crucifying Jesus, the religious leaders, Pilate, the soldiers. Just look back to verse 16. Pilate handed Jesus over to them, the soldiers, to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. As we look on it, it seems that Pilate and the soldiers were in control of the situation. Don't you believe it, says John? Jesus was in charge, verse 30. He said it is finished and with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We saw exactly the same two weeks ago. Do you remember we looked back to John chapter 10 where Jesus said, I lay down my life only to take it up again. Who can say that? I lay down my life. Who can say that? Who of us decides when to lay down their life? Well, of course, with the assisted dying issue in the news, you may argue that a a number of people have done just that. But who on death row, when they're in the hands of others, decides when to give up their life? That's what Jesus did. No one can do that except the one who is the very author of life. Jesus willingly gave up his life. Yes, God the Father planned his death. We've seen that already in the predictions earlier. But Jesus was in complete agreement and in complete control of the events of his death. This was no cosmic child abuse, as some have said recently, that in some way the Father was uh, taking a willing, uh, an innocent victim and crucifying him. Jesus willingly went to his death. This was willing right down to the very moment he died. He was in complete control of these moments. He gave up his spirit, verse 30. John chapter 10, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And the astonishing thing is, even though Jesus never ever had to die, he willingly did it for you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And he did it because, five, despite appearances, Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. For the Jews, Jesus was a stench on the land and on their celebrations. It was the day of preparation, we read. The day to prepare for the Passover. The most important festival of the year for the Jews. 
And so, verse 31, they didn't want the bodies of criminals left on crosses during their special Sabbath. But ironically, John wants us to see that Jesus died on the day of preparation was not an inconvenience, but it was indeed the fulfilment of the very festival the Jews were celebrating. The Passover celebration was the time when the Jewish family, every Jewish family, remembered when in Moses' time the people of God were in captivity in Egypt. When God was going to send his judgment upon the whole land in the most terrifying way. A judgment that would come on all who lived in the land, Egyptians and Israelites alike. A judgment from the Lord that would see the death of every firstborn male in every family the death of every firstborn male in every family in the land. Now let's just stop and ponder that for a moment. It was my little boy's third birthday on Wednesday. His name is Joshua. We had a lovely party with him. We adore that little boy. He's a scamp and a complete terrorist, but we adore him. He's always up to all sorts of mischief, but he's daddy's lovely boy. He told me that earlier today. Had we lived in Egypt in the time of Moses, the judgment of God meant that Joshua would be dead by morning. The pain that would cause is inconceivable. I don't think we'd ever really recover if we lost that little boy. It was a terrible judgment and it demonstrated how seriously God takes the contempt we show for his son. That was the judgment to come, but there was a way out. God made provision for the people of Israel so that they could escape this terrible judgment. There was one way out. And this is what they had to do. And you can read all about it in the book of Exodus. They were to take a lamb, a perfect, unblemished lamb, and they were told in the book of Exodus they were to slaughter it without breaking a bone in its body. Not one bone must be broken. And then they were to pour out some of that little lamb's blood and paint it on the doorpost of their front door using the hyssop plant as a paintbrush. And then as a family, they were to eat the lamb. And in the book of Exodus, God said, when I see the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, I will pass over you. No judgment will come upon you. And so what did we see in the land of Egypt the next morning? Uh, The next morning, in every Egyptian home, there was a firstborn son, dead, wailing. Parents who'd lost their little boy, And in every Israelite home, there was a dead lamb. The firstborn son, still alive, alive as ever, full of life, getting up to mischief. Every Egyptian home, a dead son. Every every Israelite home, a dead lamb. And the logic was impregnated into every Jewish mind. The lamb took the place of the firstborn son. They all knew that. They all knew it. The lamb had been slaughtered without a bone broken and whose blood had been painted on the doorpost. That lamb had died in place of the sun. And that's what the Jews were preparing to celebrate that day in Jerusalem as Jesus died, verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. And it was no coincidence that at the very time that Jesus was dying, So in the temple, the priests were sacrificing hundreds of lambs to be reminders to the people of the first Passover all those years before. 
And ironically, they wanted the body of Jesus off the cross and out of sight, when on that day of all days, they should have looked at Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John wants us to see here. Verse 31, it was a day of preparation for a special Sabbath. Verse 29, the hyssop plant was used to lift up the vinegar, just as the hyssop plant had been used all those years ago in the Passover. And crucially, halfway through verse 31, because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. You see, breaking the legs of those crucified would end their lives quickly. The soldiers would come and smash the legs, the, the, the hips of the criminals, so that they could no longer push themselves up in order to take a breath. And so very quickly they would suffocate and die. But as we read that, we know that if Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then his bones must not be broken. And so, verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And what are we to learn from all that? Verse 36. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Not one of his bones will be broken. Written in Exodus chapter 12, some 12 or 1300 years before Christ. And written in Psalm 34, about a thousand years before Christ. And fulfilled at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when John saw in verse 34 and 35, Jesus' blood flowing out from his body and running down the cross, he thinks of the blood of the lamb that was painted on the doorposts. And then when Jesus was pierced by a sword rather than having his bones broken, John tells us that yet another scripture was fulfilled in verse 37. They will look on the one they've pierced. Zechariah chapter 12. It is difficult to escape the conclusion that John intends us to understand. This man hanging on the cross was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God that had been slaughtered without a bone broken. The Lamb whose death and blood was a substitute for another. A substitute for all those who deserved the punishment of God to fall on them because of the contempt and scorn they show his son. He was a substitute for you and me. And so we see that this first Good Friday was the most important event that ever happened in the history of the world. As Jesus dealt with the greatest problem that is in the world. Question, is that how you see it? What do you make of this amazing moment in history? What do you make of the thought that this was predicted hundreds of years before it happened and in such detail? I guess some of you will want to do some research on this. And have you realised this evening what a terrible thing it is to have such scorn for Jesus and that we all do it all the time. We may not make the newspaper, but we all do it all the time. Have you realised how bad that is and how it leaves you and me up to our neck in spiritual debt? And have you grasped how much he loves you? 
that he should be prepared to lay down his life for you. He didn't have to die. I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes my life from me. He loves you enough that he laid down his life to pay that debt. What do you make of it? As we head towards this Easter time, there is no better time to look into these things. And indeed, I want to encourage you to... uh, Some of you will be saying, "I, I really want to do want to look into these things. I want to encourage you to pick up one of these, our Open to Question course. It starts just after Easter, on the 9th of May. It's a Tuesday evening, and for seven Tuesday evenings, we'll be looking at these very things, answering questions. Now, we invite any question at all. No question is a bad question. If you want to investigate these things, if you want to look further into uh, whether you can trust the Bible, who this man Jesus is, this would be a great thing to go on. If this really is the most important thing in the history of the world, then, well, seven Tuesday evenings isn't many to investigate. I'll have some of these on the door. Grab hold of one, or grab one. You'll see them around the building. Just take one from me, and I can tell you some more about it. All the details are here. And if you're a Christian already, well, there's no greater time than this Easter time to be rejoicing in the death of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is amazing, and it will leave us rejoicing. Let's pray together. Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Jesus said, it is finished. John says, these things happen so the scripture will be fulfilled. We thank you, our Lord and God, that as this amazing drama was unfolding 2,000 years ago, it was the fulfilment, the completion of the most astonishing plan, rescue plan that you have for the world. We thank you for the amazing love of the Lord Jesus, that he should give up his life for us, for those of us who scorn him and reject him day after day. And we thank you that as we turn to him in repentance and faith, then not only today, but for the whole of eternity, life will never be the same again. And we pray as we head into this Easter time that our lives would be full of thankfulness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.